Welcome to Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. Good afternoon. I'm Larry Jacobs, and I am a faculty here at the University of Minnesota in the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, which is the University of Minnesota School of Public Affairs. Um, I want to just a couple quick things. Um, if you are uh, coming to us uh, via Zoom, welcome. Uh, you'll see at the bottom of your screen that there is a um, uh, two buttons, virtual buttons. Uh, one is Q&A. That's how you give us questions and participate in today's conversations. And the other button at the bottom is transcript, live transcript. So if you'd like that service, just click on it. You'll get a live transcript of the conversation today. I am just uh, thrilled to have this uh, opportunity uh, to be part of today's program um, on a better path to achieving public safety. We have a terrific set of conversations coming forward. I want to first just uh, take the opportunity of welcoming uh, my friend and, co and uh, collaborator, Norm Ornstein. Uh, those of you who follow politics will know Norm Ornstein is one of the premier uh, scholars and commentators on Congress. He has spent more time and been more successful in achieving important uh, good government legislation in Washington than anyone I know. So it is really a pleasure to have Norm Ornstein with us today. Norm Ornstein. Thanks so much, Larry. Uh, I could start by saying I'm from Washington and I'm here to help. Uh, but uh, while I come from Washington, I'm a Minnesotan. I was born here. I went to this great university uh, a long time ago. Um, I identify as a Minnesotan. My Vikings hat is uh, over there. Uh, I left my twins hat at home uh, and I care about this state. Uh, now, as Larry said, my specialty is American politics and Congress, but I've gotten very much immersed in uh, trying to reform the broken mental health care system. And also now, as we see the very direct intersection that it has with the criminal justice system and the system of policing that we have. And I've done this uh, really not out of a direct uh, uh, meaningful choice, but because like so many others, and there is scarcely a family in America that hasn't been touched by all of this, mine was hit uh, with an enormous tragedy. Uh, I had a son named Matthew, uh, who was a brilliant young man, a national champion high school debater, went to Princeton and excelled, was out in Hollywood and doing well when at age 24, he had a psychotic break and went through 10 years of hell uh, as we did in, in his family. Um, and because a part of his brain disease was something called anosognosia, where he had no insight into his illness, something that hits very large proportion of those with serious mental illness, uh, he would not accept treatment. We, had, uh, we were powerless. We couldn't even find out at times uh, whether he was 
in a hospital or where he was. Uh, and it became clear that uh, the system just wasn't responding the way it was supposed to. And while he did not have serious or deadly encounters with the criminal justice system, he died accidentally of carbon monoxide poisoning at age 34 after these 10 years of struggle. And my family, my wife, uh, Judy Harris, my other son, Danny, and the rest of us decided that we needed to do something to turn grief to purpose. And we've been involved very deeply in trying to change this system. We're trying to do it nationally, but also recognize that this has to happen at the local level and at the state level. And what we learned along the way, especially as we went down to Miami-Dade County, Florida, and encountered the remarkable judge who's with us today and who you will hear from a little bit later named Steve Leifman, is that there are ways to save lives and save money at the same time. There are ways to reform the criminal justice system and the way policing is done. While we can also help those with serious mental illness get back on their feet and resume the lives that they should have from what is a, a disease of an organ, it's a brain disease, there's nothing willful about it, but they're often helpless in this process at all levels. And one of the worst things that can happen is if a family member in most places in the country calls the police because there's a crisis going on, but not knowing whether that will end in an even deeper tragedy rather than in finding somebody help. That's true at all levels. Minnesota now is in the national spotlight for a whole host of reasons, and they're not good reasons right now, but there is an opportunity here to be able to affect change. And that's what this program is about as a start, not an end point. But we're going to start right now with uh, the great Larry Jacobs in a conversation with the new chief of public safety uh, here in Minneapolis, Dr. Cedric Alexander. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> I'd like to uh, uh, give a quick introduction of Dr. Cedric Alexander, uh, who was just uh, confirmed, approved. Uh, as the first Minneapolis Community Safety Commissioner. Uh, the number of hats he's wearing, it's incredible. It, it just, uh, it's basically fire to police and, and a lot of stops in between. He spent over 40 years as a deputy police officer, a detective, a deputy mayor, and a police chief in cities across the United States. He also has a doctorate of clinical psychology, uh, which is uh, quite appropriate uh, for our conversation today. First, I want to welcome you, Dr. Alexander, and thank you for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. Can you hear me okay? A little bit colder, sir? How about that? Okay. All right. No, but <clears throat> I am delighted to be here, first of all. I'm delighted to be here at the university and uh, equally as delighted to be here in the city of Minneapolis, too, particularly in this, you know, in this time and space and history of what's going on across the country. Uh, as it relates to public safety. So um, this is not somewhere I had intended to be about six months ago, uh, but I got a call from Mayor Jacob Fry and he asked me if I could help uh, in terms of where they wanted to take public safety in this community and his ideals about it and bringing all these different platforms of public safety together, police, fire, emergency management, et cetera. Uh, under one umbrella, and this is new to this community. It's not new to me because, quite frankly, a few years ago, I held uh, this same position in DeKalb County, Georgia, which is a huge 
uh, metropolitan community right adjacent to Atlanta. Uh, and the responsibilities were virtually the same. But of course, the circumstances and personalities of those communities are very different in a whole lot of different ways. So looking forward to the opportunity to along with the community to affect some change uh, in terms of where we have been and, and where we are and where we need to be. Norm Ornstein, you'd like to get us started with some questions? Sure. So uh, the, the first question I'd like to ask you is, how does your degree in clinical psychology help you uh, in your various <laughs> roles? Well, it keeps me sane. Uh, <laughs> that's the first thing it does. And uh, now, let me tell you a little bit about, on a serious note, uh, about how that all evolved for me. I spent a number of years in Miami, actually, as a police officer uh, with Miami-Dade Police Department. And I left in 92, decided to go do a doctorate in clinical psychology, uh, attended Wright State University up in Dayton, trained at the University of Miami and the University of Rochester, uh, schools of medicine at both those institutions in the Department of Psychiatry. Um, but for me, actually, when I left policing in 92, <clears throat> excuse me, my intent was never to go back. I was finished with police and I did it for about 15 years or so. And I was thought I would spend the rest of my life uh, being a mental health provider. Uh, but when I got to Rochester, New York, uh, to do a postdoc fellowship uh, for a year or two there at the institution, I ended up working for the next five years in the Department of Psychiatry, seeing general population uh, 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 patients. But along with that, also the university had contracted with the city of Rochester that all their trauma related cases involved their police officers, firefighters were referred to me specifically because of my background as a police officer and now as a psychologist. So I did that for about five years. Mayor and I became friends uh, city of Rochester were having many of the same issues that's going on in this community today. He recruited me over as a deputy chief in 2002, and I never did go back into psychology after that. Uh, but it was never my idea to go back into policing. Uh, but I tell you, the having a having having been trained as a psychologist, having worked as a psychologist. And I have led a number of departments across this country, both at the local, state and federal level, really has benefited me in the sense of being able to understand, have a better understanding and insight into how people function inside different organizations and particularly in leadership positions. Uh, it benefited me to understand the people that were working closely around me and being able to have better insight into their strengths, their weaknesses, and that allowed me an opportunity to work with them and, and help develop them into the next generation of leaders. Uh, and partly before I came here uh, from Pensacola, that's what I was doing a lot of, a lot of consulting and certainly talking to working with a number of new emerging chiefs across the country. And uh, now here I am again back in you know, back in the uh, public safety arena uh, in a community that is still considered the epicenter of civil unrest and police reform, if you will. So this is a very unique time for this community. It's a very unique time for me in the history of my life. Uh, but I answered the call of the mayor, and that's the only reason that I'm here. 
in, but I think it's a great opportunity if we look around and see how public safety is attempting to emerge and grow and expand the way that we do business, particularly around the whole subject around mental health, a much more balanced approach to it now, of thinking about it in a very, very different way. And real quickly, I served on Obama's task force for 21st century policing uh, through executive order, myself and 10 other people were selected across the country for that. And in that document, if you're familiar with it, uh, and we had six pillars in that document that we were asked by the president at that time to, to formulate a document post Michael Brown event that would provide a roadmap to policing in this country, something that you could refer to. Uh, and we went across the country, talked to a number of organizations, human rights, civil rights, uh, academics, you name it. And we compiled all this information with support of White House staff uh, over a short period of time. We only had a two months to pull this together, but it turned out to be one of the most, um, I think, and maybe I say this with some bias, but it really turned out to be a document that still to this very day, uh, many law enforcement agencies refer to when they get stuck. And it's not anything that's in the document that's profound, uh, but there's some things in that, that we've learned, like in Pillar 6, when it comes to officer wellness, the importance of being conscious of that and things that we need to do to help officers to be able to perform the, their duties when they're in such a stressful type of job, if you will, that over a period of time, the duration and frequency of those events that they experience do have impact upon them tremendously, uh, both psychologically, physically, emotionally, et cetera. So the document has served to be of some real benefit, and uh, but the work and some of the writing and op-eds I've done uh, in more recent years, I hope has contributed to us continue to think about how do we look at, at advancing police in this country uh, in spite of the challenges that are in front of us. One of the uh, concerns here in Minnesota has been about integrating uh, policing, mental health for both the, the police officers, but also for uh, those who are being brought into the criminal justice system and the, the system itself, the prosecutors, the defense counsel, the judges, um, and the officers themselves. Do you, do you aspire to strengthening the integration of mental health into that fuller criminal justice system? I think we have to. You know, I don't, you know, no longer, no longer can we actually ignore it. Uh, because when I think about <clears throat> the last couple of times I've served as chief, uh, there in Metro Atlanta, DeKalb County, and even going back to Rochester, New York, uh, we had, even back in 2005, I developed a program for that city that mimics very much what you do today. And it was much more targeted, much more specific. We kept data and we had great data on the work that we were doing. But of course, when you have changes in mayoral administrations, uh, it lost itself over the course of years. And to their chagrin, uh, it had not benefited them to put that document aside because they ran into a number of problems uh, in dealing with people with mental health that probably could have been avoided had they maintained that uh, 
training in which uh, I had introduced as a psychologist with the help of my colleagues at the University of Rochester, NAMI there in Rochester, and a host of other uh, community contributors. Um, but yes, we have to, in 21st century policing today, the world is much more convoluted and it's much more complex than it ever has been before. We know through the literature that a great deal of calls for service that we respond to today have some mental health component to it. Whether it's drugs, alcohol, depression, which is a leading cause of mental health in this country or some, kind of, some type of psychotic episode or whatever the case may happen to be, a great number of calls we respond to has that component in and around it somewhere. And any correctional institution, whether it's here in Hennepin County or anywhere else will tell you, uh, the greatest number of their populations they have incarcerated at this very moment are people who have mental health issues that are going on in their life. And we arrest these people, we incarcerate them, we put them in, in jail, but they never received the type of support that they need in order to work through uh, these mental health issues. Some of them may be more organic than others. Some of them may be more uh, environmental, uh, but the fact of the matter is since the deinstitutionalization of, of mental health patients across this country in the past 30 years because of onset of new SSRIs and et cetera, uh, what we have seen is that when these when people left these institutions, they were put out on the street with prescriptions, but they did not have a support system. And when you don't have a support system in place, then you're going to end up uh, a lot of what we see in homelessness, which we know uh, characteristically about 70, 80 percent of the homeless population struggle with some mental illness. That is a huge number and it seems to be growing. Uh, homelessness seems to be growing across this country for a variety of social reasons that now uh, police has absolutely no control over and police is least trained to uh, interact with people who are suffering with these uh, mental health conditions. And when you have people who are struggling with mental health and when you have police departments in oftentimes that are undertrained to engage um, this population, oftentimes we've seen the outcome as the not being very good. And it's not to the benefit of that person who's struggling with mental illness and neither has it been to the benefit of police departments of that officer, officers who had to engage and either use too little force or they use too much force and then we're off to the races. Uh, and we got to fix that because what we're doing, we're sending oftentimes across this country, police officers out to do uh, a job that oftentimes they have the least amount of training for. And that is not right. And we got to do a better job Thank at you. that. More more, sir. Yeah. Uh, you've raised so many important points. We know that more police officers die by suicide than in the line of duty every year, uh, <laughs> that there are serious mental health issues that have to be dealt with. And we have to find ways of doing it outside of departments uh, so that there's uh, no stigma and other issues that can be attached to them. 
We know that the three largest facilities of dealing with mental health are uh, in the country are the Los Angeles County Jail, the Cook County Jail, and Rikers Island, all of which we're also going to have to deal with. You've raised some issues about the training of police officers, and I'd, I'd like to follow up in a couple of ways. One is we know that generally police officers are trained to escalate. If you're issued a command, it has to be followed, and if it isn't, you escalate the conflict. What are the ways... Uh, crisis intervention team policing being one that we can move people to de-escalate more. But I also want to ask you if we have a broken system when we recruit people into departments of making sure that we have the right people and that we're not bringing in people who are going to themselves create more problems. And are there ways at the initial stages of training new recruits to perhaps build in a different way of looking at policing? And can you do something about that here in Minneapolis? So, so let's start with the recruitment aspect of, uh, of young people coming into policing today. First of all, let me note that across this country, uh, attempts to recruit young people to come into the profession, particularly Generation Z, if you will, uh, they have very little uh, interests in being police officers. The recruitment efforts across this country now are humongous. Uh, Minneapolis lost two, 300 officers uh, in 2021, right after the riots. Uh, they went from 800 officers approximately down to where we are now, about 550. That is a huge, significant loss of police officers in the city. Uh, that's the size of Minneapolis. Um, and so now we are in the process of trying to come up like every other city in America, whether Chicago, Philadelphia, you name it, everybody is struggling now to attempt to recruit. Uh, but that's going to be an ongoing effort. And we're probably not going to see those two or 300 officers back anytime during the course of my career here or anyone else, to be perfectly honest with you. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's trending a very different way now. So what does that mean? It means that we're going to have to learn how to, across this country, police differently, and we're going to have to supplant those losses with something else. And my idea of supplanting those losses with something else are two things I think we have to consider. One, we're going to have to introduce new technology. I'm going to get to the mental health part here in a second. We're going to have to introduce new technology into a policing. And there's a lot of technology out there that can be useful in terms of crime fighting. Number two, equally as important, if not more important, we got to continue to develop in these relationships in communities because there is where you get the force multiplier. Yeah. When you have people in the community that see their agency as being legitimate they see them as being trustworthy. They have real genuine relationships with their community police officers. And it's not this proverbial coffee and a cop. Uh, that is not going to suffice. It sounds great, but it really has no real substance to it. You really have to have relationships in communities now that are sustainable. They're genuine. They're original. Everybody understands it for their own public safety. We all have to work together. And we all have to meet and talk about these things together. <clears throat> we also have to create strategies with our community members today. We can no longer as police 
uh, executives uh, isolate ourselves and work in a silo and tell you how I, you know, I'm telling you how you should protect your community. That has to be a joint effort. You live in that community. You know what your needs are. So I need to be able to hear you, adjust my personnel and resources, no matter how limited that they are around what your needs are in your community. And we have to be supportive of each other. In terms of recruiting young people today, the type of young men and women we need in departments today are young men and women who have the ability to embrace differences. That is number one. You have to be able to embrace differences. And many of y'all young people today, regardless of what age they are, many of them do because they grew up in a very different time. They've had all kinds of friends by the time they finish high school. And it doesn't matter whether they live in a rural area or urban area, suburban area. Uh, because of social media, our children have friends that are around the globe that we don't even know about, even if they live in a very homogeneous community somewhere. But they have a variety of different friends that go to their schools, that go to their churches, that go to their synagogues. And merely because we all may appear to be of some specific ethnic group, there is diversity even within those groups. And we know that today. We have to acknowledge that today because you can't look out into a crowd and make the determination that everyone is the same. Uh, so young people have to have the ability to embrace difference. They have to be empathetic and they have to respect humanity because in policing, it really is about preserving life because at any term, at any time that we have to use deadly force that is a last option. That is the final option. That is not the first option that we come to. And in policing, we're changing. We're going to be forced to change because we're not going to see the numbers we used to see. Communities are holding policing a lot more accountable today than what they have in the past. People are asking questions. People are demanding answers. And uh, we have to open up our agencies to the public so that they can see what we're doing inside. It cannot be some clandestine operation where, ooh, I don't want to ask the police how they do this or how they do that. No, what we encourage, what I've encouraged now, even our standard operating procedure manuals are put up online so that the general public can see what it is exactly what we do and how we do it from wearing our hats to and how we conduct internal investigations to to uniforms to you name it these are your police departments they don't belong to me as a chief or as a commissioner they belong to the citizens in which we are serving and those attitudes are changing and the men and women i think that will come into this profession not in high numbers, but those that do, uh, they're going to see it very differently. Dr. Alexander, we're running out of time, but I want to address a question I think is in the mind of a lot of folks in Minneapolis who've frankly lost trust in the police department, who see the department as the, um, the Minnesota Department of Human Rights in its report um, uh, indicated was a, an institution with systemic racism. Mm -hmm. What will be the markers of change? How will you be able to demonstrate to so many folks in this town 
that there's real change and that the department is no longer uh, racist because the idea of change in Minneapolis, it, it's not really it's not really believed in. Yeah. So, you know, legitis, you know, legitimacy becomes the question here. And if people across this country in this community or in this or in a city don't see their police department as being legitimate, then people are less likely to respect you and to do whatever it is that you ask of them because they don't see you or feel you as being a legitimate organization, even though you have been given them the authority by the state of Minnesota or any state across this country, you've been given the authority and the power to take people freedom away from them and even to take a life away from someone. If it's justifiable, you have that kind of authority, you have that kind of power, but it means nothing, nothing. If the people in which you serve don't see you as being legitimate. I can go to the best school in the country, University of Minnesota. I can go to the greatest medical school in this country, right here at this great university, right here at this great institution, receive all the greatest credentials that you can ever see received to be the recognized as the finest neurosurgeon in the world. But if people, if those patients and people don't see me as being legitimate, my skills won't mean anything to anyone. Are, are there specific um, indicators or how will people know that, that? Yeah, you know, how they will know that is going to be over time. I think that's going to be determined, quite frankly, about how we move forward, how we develop and create new leadership. I mean, not new leadership, but relationships across our communities, how we develop our mental health program, how we engage communities in a very genuine an authentic kind of way, those attitudes will change. But let's be realistic about something. Racism is alive and well in every institution in this country, every institution. It's not just relegated to public safety, it's across all domains. So it's a huge problem, it's a big problem, but we all have a responsibility to work towards it. But are we gonna ever get it to zero? Probably not in my lifetime, probably not in yours too. But those of us who are responsible citizens, those of us who are responsible academics, those of us who are responsible in whatever endeavor of life you're involved in, as citizens or whatever, we have a responsibility to be able to share, be able to be respectful, be able to be understanding to differences that are around us, because guess what? These differences aren't going anywhere. They're not. In fact, they're going to expand. And all the differences that we have right here in this great country of ours, nobody is leaving. Black folks ain't leaving. White folks ain't leaving. LGBT ain't leaving. Catholic and Jews aren't leaving. Everybody is going to be right here. Because that is truly the essence of what really makes us a great country and a great democracy. But to your question, the changes are going to be in the way that we treat each other and the way that we respond. And it's going to be hard to measure, but people will tell us over time that we're doing things better. They feel more respected. Procedural justice, uh, which I won't get into now, plays a significant part in terms of how I deliver service to, to people in the community.
but we have a lot of work to do in Minneapolis because this is a community that quite frankly, and not just in North Minneapolis or South Minneapolis, but throughout this entire city, there are a number of people who are unable to at this very moment see their police department as being legitimate or trustworthy. Part of my mission, part of the mission of public safety in which I have been assigned to and take responsibility for is to help build those relationships, create an environment in which people begin to see their public safety very differently, get our men and women trained, hold them accountable and responsible for their actions, but more importantly, to role model to the leadership, whether it's the chief of police or the fire chief or whomever, for me to role model to them what I expect for them to role model to their command staff, which I expect for them to role model to the very last person hired in their respective agency. That's how we change it a little bit at a time. But at this very place that this city is in at this very moment, we really don't have anywhere to go but up, quite frankly. And to be honest with you, you have a lot of naysayers in your community. You got a lot of people in this community that also find value in us being stuck. They find value in it that benefits them, but it does not benefit this overall community. And I will call it out when I see it because I'm not going to run from it. You confront me and you confront these agencies that are trying to do better. You're going to get confrontation back because we can no longer just sit on the sideline, let people say whatever they want to say that does not grow your organization, doesn't grow your city. It serves no value. It's full of negativity and nastiness. There's no place for that. And if we stand by and don't say something or push back to it, then we're complicit. And I didn't come 1,200 miles from Florida to come here and be complicit. I didn't come here not to do nothing. I could have stayed home and did nothing. <laughs> so I'm committed to the challenge here, but I need this entire community to be committed to the challenge because we do have a challenge in front of us, but I'm confident that the men and women in public safety, whether in police, a fire, emergency management, wherever, people have the ability and the capacity to do better, and we're going to do better. Dr. Cedric Alexander, fortunately, we've run out of time. It was a very powerful statement, and I want you to know throughout this community, there's hope for you and the leadership you're providing. There are going to be the naysayers, but the vast majority of citizens and people in public life are pulling for you. So you are not alone in this. There are a lot of people who know there's only one place to go and it's up. And I think you've put it well. So thank you very much for joining thank us. Thank you for having me. We look forward to seeing you. Thank you very much. Thank you.